you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Micah. The book of Micah. I know there's at least one person here happy that we're in this book this morning. We'll be looking at Micah chapter 6. One of the things that I love to watch is courtroom drama. Law and Order uh, for years has been one of my favorite shows because at the beginning you get uh, you know, the, the crime scene and, and, and whatever the crime that has been committed, you get the police on the scene. You always get that pithy little line right before the opening credits that's, that's given, some little joke, uh, sometimes sarcasm, sometimes irony. But then uh, as the show progresses, you see the police uh, f- narrow in on their suspect and then eventually go and arrest the guy. And in the second half of the show, you see the prosecution pick up the case. You see it going to trial as they're continuing to mount evidence and and, and, and ultimately uh, try and get a guilty verdict on the person that they believe has committed this crime. And I'm, I don't think that I'm alone in liking that kind of uh, drama played out because show after show after show, particularly now, is based on the crime drama. It's all about the law court scenario. And it's either the police getting them there or the lawyers, uh, once they've got them, seeking to either prosecute or defend those that are prosecuted. Movies, likewise, have had a long tradition. Some of the best ones have, have drawn on this heightened courtroom drama. Some of us who have not even seen uh, the movie, but nevertheless, through, 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 through clips and through other things, we, uh, we have that powerful scene lodged in our minds of the angry jag attorney yelling at the colonel, testifying on the stand. The colonel asking him, what do you want? And the jag officer saying, I want the truth. And him responding, you can't handle the truth. Right? I mean, that's stuck. It's, it's right there in pop culture. Courtroom drama at its best. It's great stuff. It's great stuff as long as it's fiction. But once it moves into real life, it doesn't become all that great anymore. When you find yourself having to sit in a courtroom with a friend or a loved one who is on trial, suddenly the courtroom drama becomes an entirely different manner. It's no longer fun. It's no longer pleasant. It's no longer something you sit back with a Coke and some chips and enjoy. It's something that grieves your heart. The once intriguing drama now becomes an agonizingly stressful uncertainty. This person's life is at stake. What will happen to that person that I care so much about? And Micah, that courtroom tension is heightened all the more because it's not just someone's friend, it's not just someone's neighbor, it is the very people of God that are being placed on trial. Prophet Micah presents his prophetic message, his sermons to the people in such a way that it culminates in a prophetic indictment of God's people from God himself. They who had entered into a covenant with God, a covenantal promissory relationship, they have now broken that covenant by their sin. Not once, not twice, not a couple times over some years, but repeatedly, regularly, throughout generation after generation after generation. Now God, as it were, puts them into the courtroom and reads off their list of sins, their list of crimes, and finds them guilty. These are not the kind of people that God desires to have. These are not the kind of people that Israel promised they would be. And in Micah chapter 6, we have a climax of sorts to all of this. And here is what we read from God's word. 
Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of reservoirs of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. Here God lays out what he expects of his people. Those that are called by his grace to be his people are to act a certain way. They are to live a certain way before God and the other peoples of the world. And during Micah's time, Israel was failing miserably at this. And as we seek to understand that, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what about us? What about us today living in the 21st century? As Christians, we have been called by God's grace to be his people, to live a certain way before him, before the peoples of the world. But do we even know what that kind of life is supposed to look like? If we do know what it looks like, are we living it? If not, why? And how can we come to live that kind of life before God? That is, how can we live the kind of life that both honors God and brings us joy? As we try to answer these questions, we want to see two things from the text that we have just read this morning. First, we want to see the indictment of God's people, the indictment of God's people. And here we see the indictment first comes to God's people because of the offense of sin, the offense of sin. Chapter six opens again with these words, hear what the Lord says. Aride, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. God is calling all of the earth to arise and bear witness against his people, Israel. So evidence is the sinfulness of their lives. And he says, metaphorically, even creation itself can stand up and bear notice and give testimony that they have seen their sin. Micah, of course, is God's prophet as he is calling the people to this awareness. He is a prophet who is coming after Amos that we looked at a few weeks ago and about the same time as Hosea that we just looked at last week. Likewise, Micah is the contemporary of Isaiah. Only two years separate the span of their ministry. Micah began just a little bit earlier. And Micah is coming, bringing this pronouncement of sin in tandem with the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah was very much related to the king at that time, King Uzziah. And he was very much likely a court historian. uh, Someone who would have been in and around the royal family, in and around uh, the, the very center of power power among God's people. And yet he was also called to be a prophet for God, proclaiming God's word against the sin of his people. Now, Isaiah is doing it from the urban area, from the elite, from among the halls of power. And Micah is coming on the opposite end. He's grown up 
among the farmlands and the lowlands. He's a blue-collar kind of a guy. And yet he is paralleled with Isaiah, calling forth the people, calling them on their sin, calling them back to repentance before their God. Both of these prophets, Isaiah and Micah here, speak of an indictment of the Lord against his people. It's courtroom language. It's courtroom language. And although it's not spelled out in these verses, Micah is clear what sins the people have committed elsewhere in the book. Remember, as we go through these books, books by book by book, uh, we, we're typically zeroing in on one passage, but we want, to stand, we want to understand the book as a whole so that as you're reading it, then you'll find yourself in Micah and you'll have a framework in mind for what's going on here. And so as we look at this, we want to bring in all of the book to see what's going on. And, and it's very clear from chapters 2 and 3 especially what the sins are that Micah is railing against what God is bringing the indictment about here first the poor are being oppressed second the wealthy people were engaging in fraudulent business practices one of the ways that helped keep the poor oppressed to make matters worse the court worse the court system was so corrupted that justice was never achieved for these poor people and so in chapters two and three we read things like this Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil? Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. It says everything is corrupt. Uh, only the wealthy are getting what they want. The people, the, the judges and those in power are only, are only making the decisions that the people want when they're paid enough. He says that the, the whole thing is flawed. There's no justice. There's, there's no mercy for the oppressed. And all the while, Micah says, the priests and the prophets, those who were supposed to provide spiritual leadership for God's people, they too were corrupt. In chapter 3, we read this again. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Israel's priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster will come upon us. So, so, so let's just take our circumstance here and let's, let's orient it a little bit differently. Let's say that, that rather than, than the way things are set up and just getting a nice little paycheck in the mail, let's say it was like many old churches where you took up the offering and part of it went to pay for whatever needs there were in the church and the rest was given to the pastor. And let's say that one week, very little was given in. And so the next week I come and I say, you sinners, you need to repent. God's judgment is coming upon you. And then that week, there's a big offering. And next week I say, oh, you are among the blessed of the Lord. The God wants to prosper you and, and his hand is upon you. That's the kind of thing the prophets are doing. So, so the king is, is you know, supposedly inquiring of the Lord through the prophets and he gives him a big meal and says, come. And he, he gives him a new cloak and a new staff. Now tell me what the Lord says. Oh, the Lord loves you. Yeah, you're doing good. You keep it up. Mm -hmm. but, but, but then the king says that he has nothing to give the prophet. And he says to you, tell us. We, we want to know what the Lord wants us to do. And he says, Lord hates you. Hates your guts. Lord stands against you. Bad things are coming. That's the situation that's going on here. Spiritually, everything is corrupt. Everything is bankrupt among God's people. 
You know, and if you were reading, frankly, about some, some urban city that, that was known for this kind of thing, Chicago, New Orleans, corrupt politicians, excessive amount of poverty, you kind of say, you know, yeah, we should, you know, we should do something about that. This is God's people we're talking about. This is a nation, of, a kingdom of priests that we're supposed to have here. And they are corrupt to the core. It's a very incredibly bleak picture that we are presented by the prophet Micah. And here, though the people are called to love the Lord their God with all of their lives, with all, their, with, all their, uh, with all their very being, and to love their neighbor as themselves, they're not doing any of it. The question is, what has happened to them? Why are they living this way? And this is the same question God himself asks. And in verses 3 through 5, we see the evidence of grace. God brings the indictment because of their sin, and part of the evidence that he presents in the courtroom is the past grace that they have received. It is, though meant to be good, becomes part of the condemning evidence that's heaped upon them, the evidence of grace. God says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Here, basically, God is giving a, a large overview of key moments of, in Israel's history. He begins by talking about the redemption out of slavery in Egypt. We saw this a little bit last week. Remember, God came down in power and glory and revealed himself as far superior to any of the pagan gods the Egyptians worshipped. Uh, devastating uh, the, 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 the land because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Bringing them out, pouring the Red Sea that they might walk across in dry land and go to the land that God had promised to Abraham his descendants would have. All the while giving them earthly leaders, earthly representatives, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam grace in their life. Later, even after Israel rebelled against God, they refused to trust Him, refused to go in the promised land. God protected them in the wilderness. One example of this was the scene of Balaam and Balak. Balak was a Moabite king and he wanted Balaam to curse Israel. He said, and he said I'll give you money, curse Israel. And God reveals to, to Balaam, this false prophet, anytime you try and curse, all that's going to happen is blessing. And Balaam tries to tell us to Balak. And Balak says, just do it, just do it, just do it. So it's fine. So he goes out of the curse, and God puts his word in his mouth instead of a blessing comes with God's people. And Balak gets so mad, I told you to curse them. And, and Balaam, you know, and part of this is, is why you kind of read the New Testament to help interpret the Old. Uh, we're, you know, we're told that Balaam was a greedy man. Why? Because on the sly, he's kind of saying, you know, well, maybe give me a little bit more money. But I'm telling you, you know, God's not going to let it happen. So be like, sure, 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 here, you know, have to have someone. And, and then you go through the cycle over and over again. All the while, he, he could have been pronouncing this curse, and God could have said, hey, you don't want to trust me? You don't want to be my people? You want to live in sin? Fine, I'll let these people curse you. And God says, no, I'm going to protect you even now in the wilderness when you don't deserve it. I'm going to put my words in the mouth of the false prophet. Then God reminds them what happened at Shittim and Gilgal. At Shittim, the people of Israel began to marry unbelievers. It didn't matter that they were ethnically different from them. What mattered is that they spiritually were different. They worshiped false gods. And God said, don't do that because he knew what would happen. It's exactly what happens at Shittim. They begin to take upon themselves the false gods of the peoples. They go from being monotheistic, worshiping the one true God, to being polytheistic, worshiping all kinds of gods. They break the covenant with their Lord. But once that sinful generation has died off, God repeats 
the Exodus miracle. He, he parts the Jordan River and allows them to pass over on dry land just as he did the Red Sea before. And they arrive at Gilgal and God renews the covenant with him. Now what's the common element in all of these things? It's God's grace. It's God's complete and unearned favor and love. They didn't deserve to be redeemed from Egypt. They didn't deserve to be protected in the wilderness after disobeying God. They didn't deserve to have the covenant renewed after they broke it. Yet every step of the way, God is displaying gracious blessing and patience through His saving acts. So it's no surprise that God is astonished at their behavior. He says, oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? He's saying, look, look at all the things that I have done for you. Look at the immense grace that I've poured on your life, the immense mercy that I've showed you. I, uh, what have I done to cause you to rebel against me? What have, I, what have I done to cause you to have such hearts of ingratitude towards all that I have poured out on you, all of the protection and the blessing that I have given to you? You know, being ungrateful is nothing new to the human race. Israel was not unique in that. You can see it in every culture, and you particularly see it in our own culture today. We are a nation of ingrates. You say, well, why do you say that? Well, let me just give you one example. How we treat elderly people. We are so impatient with them. We, on the roads, in the stores, it's to the point now where if, if I'm coming in behind someone my, my grandparents' age in the store, and, and, and they're going a little bit slower on the cart. They will look, they'll look sheepish, and they'll move out of the way so that you can pass by because they feel like they're hindering your progress. Now think about who these people are. I mean, this is what Tom Brokaw called, for right or for wrong, the greatest generation. This is the generation that fought wars to keep us safe in our own country. This is the generation that didn't go off, the ones that didn't go off the war, they stayed home and went through something called rationing. Can you imagine if we had a ration today? I mean, it would be Thunderdome. It would be complete chaos. People would be raising up arms, and, and it would just be uh, insane. And this people said, I will do it for my kids and for their kids so that our, our country has what it needs to go off and to fight and preserve our country. And now how do we treat them? Get out of the way, old timer. Come on, I got patient. I got time for you. Listen, they, they've earned the right to go as slow as they want, and they've earned the right for us to get out of their way. We're ingrates. And yet how much more so for Israel? Here is the almighty God who among all the nations of the earth, he sets his affection on Israel. He places his love upon them. And even when they spurn that love, he continues to be patient and pour out grace upon grace upon grace. Yeah, they don't care. They don't return his love. They don't worship him exclusively. They go after other gods and live in the exact opposite way that he asked them to. And you remember from the passage that they said about the prophets all the while saying, hey, we're God's people. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. How do you respond to the message that Micah gives? Micah comes in as the prophet and he says, this is the sin that you have done. God is indicting you in his divine courtroom. And now because of your refusal to acknowledge that God is a gracious and loving God and to respond in kindness because of your persistent generational sin going after other gods. Judgment is coming. How do you respond to that message? If you were an Israelite and you heard Micah preaching in one of the cities, what would you think? How would you respond? Well, Micah shows us basically two responses of the people. One that 
they had and one that they should have had. And basically, these two responses are um, uh, paradigms for, for all religious response. And so we want to look at these things because they are of immediate importance to us. And so this is the second thing we want to see, the life of authentic faith. That's what we want to have, isn't it? A life of authentic faith before God. First, though, what he presents is the response that is normal among the peoples of the world, often even us, the response of false religion. The response of false religion. Here's what the people say in verses 6 through 8. And where God has come and he said, the judgment is coming, I'm proclaiming my indictment against you. So their response is, well, well, uh, what shall I come before the, uh, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before him on high? Uh, what, what do I need to give to God? What do I need to do to, to make this not happen, to make this go away? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I, shall I give my firstborn? For my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. We have the response of someone who doesn't know God in this passage, frankly. That it's someone who, though covenantally is part of the people of God Israel, they're not a believer. They're not part of true Israel. And they're coming, hearing this message of, of judgment, and they go into a panic. And what they're saying is, I'll do anything to not face the judgment. I'll do anything to be made right with God. I just don't know what he wants. And, and, and he, he, he answers this question in some ways beginning well, but then ending in, in offensiveness to God. He starts out and he says, well, what, what about the burnt offerings that are prescribed in the law? What about those? Should, should I give some of those? Will that appease God? Then he offers them what no one will be able to afford. Thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. Will, 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 that, will that make amends with God? Finally, he suggests what would have been unthinkable in ancient Israel, though acceptable to the pagan peoples of the world. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? If I offer my kid on the altar, if, if I disembowel him and burn him up as, as a sacrifice, God, will that make the judgment go away? Can you imagine just, just even the sound of that on the people's lips, the thoughts in their heart, how repugnant that would have been to God. And yet this is the fundamental response of humanity. The question is, what do I need to do to be right with God? What, what is it that I need to do to be right with God? And the danger exists that, frankly, there are even some Christians today who are not Christians, and they think the same thing. What do I need to do to make myself right with God? During his college days, the famous evangelist, John Wesley formed a group called the Holiness Club. The goal of this club was to promote, ironically enough, a holy life among himself and his friends. They met for prayer. They met to study the New Testament in Greek and to have devotional times together. Wesley spent an hour every day in prayer. He fasted twice a week. He visited prisons and in every way tried to rid his life of sin. And in 1735, he even came over here to North America. He, lived in, he was a, an Englishman. He came to be a missionary to the North American Indians, and after miserable conflict with other missionaries and almost dying of disease, he returned to England having utterly failed as a missionary. And on the boat home, he wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who shall convert me? You see, God in his grace allowed Wesley to go through the horrible experience it is as a missionary to show him one thing at the very least. 
All the while, Wesley was doing all these things, thinking he's doing what God wants, seeking to be holy before him, to know his word, to, to, to encourage others to holiness. And, and, and what he was was a legalist. Wesley was depending on all these things that he was doing to make him right with God. He, he was trying to, much like the people in this thing, buy God off. God, God, how much is it going to take? How much holiness in my life? How much, how much working for you is it going to take for you to love me and to forgive me and to make me one of your people? And it took complete failure as a missionary to wake Wesley up to the reality that that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is not, what can I do, God? It's, God, I trust what you have done for me. The danger existed for Israel, the danger existed for Wesley, and it still exists for us today. If we are not careful, we will think that earning salvation is what the Bible teaches, that it's what I do that makes us right with God. In fact, even in, in the very last verse, the probably the most famous verse in the book of Micah, we may mistake and think the prophet's message is the same as what the people thought. I do something to make me right with God. And yet here what we see really is the response of true religion, the response of true religion. What should we do? Should we give an offering? Should we use the abundance of our wealth to pay off God? Do I need to do what the idols say to do? Offer my child as a sacrifice. Micah says, you should know what God wants. You are his people. Verse 8, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I've read that if you visit the Library of Congress in Washington off of what's called the Grand Reading Room, you will find various little alcoves devoted to the humanities. So one alcove is all for history, another for music, another for philosophy and art. And there's even an alcove set aside for books on religion. And as they were designing these alcoves and this thing, they, they pulled all of the people within, uh, within those sections of the humanities, the arts, to, to ask them what kind of image or what kind of quote or, or what, what should be put above the door frame as you go in that would, that would embody what you're about to read about. So they gather all the historians together and say, what quote from history, what story from history, what, what date would be, uh, would be great to, to put over there that you would think about as you go in? And of course they asked all of the religious leaders at that time. And they all got together and they talked and they wrote back in and they basically said this verse, Micah 6.8 was chosen to be what best represented religion to the world. Now here's the thing. For many in the world it does represent religion. What is religion all about? Religion is about you being a good person, humbly before some vague divine entity out there and working for the betterment of humanity. That's what a lot of people think religion is all about. I say, oh, well, but church never hurt anybody. You go and you know, be a good person and learn how to be kind to people, you know, serve some turkey in a soup kitchen uh, on Thanksgiving. That's good. That's good. It's, it's good propaganda. That's not what Mike is talking about here. That's not at all what the prophet is getting at. The religious people of today don't understand in that, in that setting. Don't understand what Micah 6, 8 is all about. Remember, first of all, the context of the passage. God has just reminded the people of his gracious salvation. And what is the response of the one who has received mercy from the Lord? It's to live a life fully committed to the Lord. Micah has shown that these things, justice, loving kindness, and humility before God, are all lacking in God's people, especially its leadership. And Micah is saying you can't buy off God. 
He tells you to offer sacrifice in the law, but it's not the sacrifice that God is worried about. It's the one who's giving the sacrifice. The offering of the sacrifice should come from a heart that is right with God and who loves God. It's a reflection of the person giving it. It's all of you. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what God wants. So Micah isn't saying, do these things, and God will love you, and God will forgive you. He's saying, you're already loved by God. You should know these things. You're part of the covenant people. God has already set his affection upon you. He's already redeemed you out of Egypt and made you his people, protecting you and showing grace to you. What is your response to that? To live a life of authentic faith. To love the Lord your God. How? By obeying him. If, if I told my wife, if I told my wife, I love you, so I'm going to give you flowers. And she said, well, I appreciate that, but I'm allergic to flowers, and so I don't want them. I said, but I love you. I want to give you flowers. That's nice, but I don't want that. I, you know, give me something else, chocolate or something. That would probably be a good thing. Uh, uh, no, I don't want the, but I love you. Here's the flower. Here's, no, you do what the person wants, right? You find out. If they want the you give them the, they want the flowers, you give them the flowers. If they want to, to send them out for a, for a day to do whatever they want, you clean the house, walk the kids. If that's what is loving to them, then that's what you do. God says, here's the thing. When I have taken your life on the verge of hell and eternal damnation, and I have rescued you, when you were not looking for it, when you didn't deserve it, and you could never earn it, and I have begun to clean you up, not only declaring you innocent and loved by me, but now making you righteous on the inside, here's the response of your life. God, I'm yours. I love you so much for loving me first. What do you want me to do? That's the, that's the response. And what Micah is saying is, you don't just go and pay lip service to God and do the religious, like offering the sacrifices and playing at being a prophet. He says, your life is displayed by authentic faith. You live with justice. You love kindness. And you live humbly before your God. It's the same thing that Paul says. In Romans chapter 12, writing to the early Christians, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Just as Israel was redeemed from Egypt by God, so the sal that salvation pointed forward to the greater redemption God would give in Christ. In Christ, God did what was so unthinkable for us to do. And this is partly why it was unthinkable for us to do. We, are, we were to never, God said we were to never offer our kid. Why? Because God was going to offer his son. God offered his son as a sacrifice for sins. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment sinners deserve for their wickedness and rebellion against God. And when we trust in that sacrifice, God says, I consider your sinners, your sins forgiven. They're wiped out of the books. They're gone. <clears throat> I will never bring them up again. And you will be saved from my wrath. So Paul says Romans 12, for those of us who are Christians, for those who... who for those of us who have experienced the mercy of God and the salvation He has provided in Christ, what is our reasonable response? A life of worship. It's not to go offer an animal. It's to live a life of holy obedience to God. Knowing we're not going to be perfect, but we're striving for it. Because that is how we show our love to God. And how can we not want love the one who loved us so much first? See, this is the difference between false religion and true religion, the, the, between religion as the world understands it and the gospel message of the Bible. And so Mark Driscoll, out of Pastor Mark Driscoll out of Seattle, can make the following statements. Religion says, if I obey, God will love me. The gospel says, because God, because God loves me, I can obey. Religion has good people and bad people. 
The gospel only has repentant people and unrepentant people. Religion depends on what I do. The gospel depends on what Jesus has done. Religion has the goal to get something from God. The gospel has the goal to get God himself. Religion has an uncertainty of standing before God. The gospel has certainty based on Jesus' work. Religion ends in pride and despair. The gospel ends in humility and joy. Religion is about me. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. This morning, all of us stand like Israel with God bringing against us the accusation of sin and all of us are found guilty. We have all rebelled against God. We all deserve judgment. And yet, like Israel, God offers mercy. You see, God, through Micah, said, I'm going to judge Israel. I will judge you for your sins. I can't. But at the same time, I'm going to give you hope because I will not totally and utterly destroy you like you deserve. Instead, I will spare a remnant. And one day I will gather that remnant back to me. I will forgive their sins. I will cleanse you from your sins that you will no longer go after false gods, but you will love me with all of your being. So in chapter 7, Micah says this, God again will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all your sins uh, into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to your fathers from the days of old. God is going to do this, but how is he going to do this? How is he going to bring this hope to Israel? He says that he would bring salvation through a promised Savior King, one who would not only lead Israel in righteousness, but die for their sins. And so in chapter 5, we read this. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. In other words, the judgment is here. It is, it is in our midst. God is using the peoples of the nations to judge us. But... But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the glory of the Lord, of his, the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be there. Who is this? Who is this one who's going to be born from Bethlehem? Who is this one who will stand and shepherd his people in the power of God for the glory of his name? It's Jesus Christ, God's own son. Not only came to shepherd God's people, but to be the good shepherd, the one who would give his own life for his sheep so that they might experience forgiveness. And so just as with God's people in the Old Testament, so today our only hope for escaping God's final judgment is not to depend on what we do but in trusting the mercies of God and what he has done for us in Christ. Our hope is not in a false religion of works, but in the grace of the gospel. Our hope lies not in trusting that Christ, our hope lies in trusting that Christ died for our sins in order to make us right from God. And when that is our hope, when that is, where we, that is what we bank our life on, the only response, the only response is to live a life of authentic faith. That's what the Lord requires of us, not to earn our salvation but to trust Him and let Him work in us so that we will show justice and love kindness and to be humble before our God. Father, as we come before You now, we are mindful so very often that, that for those of us that perhaps are genuinely saved, Father, so often we do not allow ourselves to be driven 
by the reminder of your grace. Father, we do not preach the gospel to ourselves every day and so live in the, in the power that you provide and the confidence. Oh, Father, no matter how we fail, we, there is no condemnation for your people. Father, help us to, to be mindful of what Israel forgot and so fell into unbelief and sin. God, in Christ, you have already loved us. For those that have trust in your Son for salvation, you have already called us to yourself. You've already adopted us as your children. Now, God, the only response that you require of us is not one to earn our salvation, but one to display our thankfulness, our gratitude, our love because of the salvation we have. Father, I pray that if there's someone here that has been trusting in themselves, been relying on their own works, that, God, that you will open their eyes the truth of Christ and the gospel and that you would call them to yourself. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.